0: Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. My name is Doug, and we are live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, thinking through God's word together. Good to see you all this morning, Alan, Keith, and uh, Tim. Glad you got your coffee at the ready. Excellent. So we are continuing our series on the flesh and the spirit, two realms, looking specifically at Romans 7 and Galatians 5, eventually. And today we are heading into that section of Romans 7, where I expect uh, some of you who've been with me thus far to see uh, see yourselves pushing back. Um, a lot of you have have given me comments saying, ah, oh, I'm starting to understand this. this. This is helpful. This makes sense. This is great. But But I know you. I know where some of you are coming from because I've been there and something's gonna change as we head into this next section or two of Romans 7. And everything we've been talking about, everything that you've been learning and saying, yes, 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 suddenly goes, wait a minute, that's not what I think. <laughs> Good morning, Jenny. Glad you're with us as well. So I, I want to prep the soil a little bit for where we are heading. And, and I want to do it this way. I'll tell you a little bit about my journey through Romans 7. So uh, I know where some of you are because I have been there. And here's what I've learned. I, I pastored for 25 years. And uh, I've taught seminary students for the last 12 years. And here's what I have learned about us as a Christian culture. And again, I include myself in this because it's true of me as well. We are really good at reading books. We're really good at reading theology books. Now, I think because of the response that I've gotten over the years that most of the people who track with me, who follow me, and who follow Cross to Crown Ministries come from some level of a Reformed bent. Uh, A lot of uh, recovering covenant theologians, (laughs) recovering uh, Reformed theologians in some ways, and we like the distinction away from covenant theology when it comes to the law and Israel and some of those things, right? So that's where a lot of you are from. Now, some of you are from a dispensational background, and some of you may be from different backgrounds altogether. But I know, I know a majority of you have come from a more reformed background. And those in those of us, and I put myself in that category, in those circles, we're really, really good at reading Books and especially theology books, and we love to read theology books. What we're not really good at is reading the Bible. Uh, and again, don't ass- I'm not going to make assumptions about each of you individually. I'm just saying collectively, this is how it is. This is how it was for me. So, I came to the church that I most recently served at, where I served for 22 years. I came as the associate pastor. And prior to that, for a couple of years, I had been serving uh, on staff in a small school and I had a pretty dramatic call to the ministry. And as soon as I was convinced that I was supposed to be in the ministry, I enrolled in seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary, a strong reformed seminary, at least used to be. You might argue that they've left some of their bearings now, but at the time it was uh, well-respected and it was the National PCA Seminary in the US. And so I started taking courses and started serving in the local church. And then I was called to uh, to a church here in Colorado Springs where I came on staff as the associate pastor. And a few years later, I became the senior pastor and I served there, like I said, for 22 years. In that journey, early on, I was immediately drawn to Reformed theology because Reformed theologians are so rational and logical and they dig deep and they had answers for questions. I was a young uh, you know seminarian I was uh, in coming into ministry and I was I, I had the gift for teaching so I wanted to be teaching and and so I was reading and reading and reading and reading everything to get my hands on and I had all kinds of questions and they had answers so I came to this church 1999. Not even finished with seminary yet, because I got called to the church before I graduated. And I am, uh, I am so excited to get involved in teaching in this church. And uh, I had a, a Sunday school uh, class that had over 100 people in it. And I was excited. So the first thing I wanted to launch into was the Book of Romans. So I am preaching, and te- well, teaching, not preaching, teaching through the Book of Romans. And I couldn't wait to, to Sunday after Sunday. I was so excited. And I did what so many do. I decided what section I was going to teach. You know, break break it down into paragraphs and one. You know, teaching, uh, pericopes as they call it in some groups. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna teach this section. And I'd look at it and I would read it, and then I would grab my commentaries, and I would read the commentaries, and let those commentaries shape how I was going to teach this section. Now. To give myself maybe a little (laughs) little bit of credit, I had some commentaries from perspectives I didn't agree with because I did want to know what the other side uh, was thinking and teaching here. So I did that and I cruised along through the first six and a half chapters or so and I got to chapter seven and I taught chapter seven somewhat the way I've been teaching through this series, but then something happened in verse seven where I began to Go down a slightly different path. And then I got to verse 14 and things changed. And I expect this is where some of you will also find yourself changing. So I'm cruising along and in verse 14, which I'll put up here for you, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now in most Bibles, there is a section break here. In fact, if you are looking at a hard copy Bible, or maybe even something online, I'd be curious to know, put it in the chat, if the Bible you're looking at has some kind of a heading over verse 14. What most people do is they, if they're teaching, if they're studying, they come to the end of 13 and say, okay, that's the end of a section. And this is especially true for preachers. They look at, you know, verse 13 ending a section. Next Sunday, we're going to pick up in verse 14. When we do that, we tend to disassociate this new section with much of what came before. So verse 14 looks like a new section. And here's how the traditional Reformed view handles this. This is how I handle this. Now Paul is switching to describe a Christian trying to obey God. My guess is some of you, if not most of you, have looked at chapter seven, verses 14 and following that way and what you do, and I did, that's where I was. And what I did is I allowed things that I was hearing theologically to drive my interpretation of this section here's how it goes. The law is spiritual. It's a good thing. I'm of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Now, I told you at the very beginning of this study, I said, some of you are not going to like what I say. And you're going to push back. And you're going to do it for two reasons. Number one, you've been taught something different. And number two... This section resonates so much with your experience that you're going to feel like I am ripping your heart out. You're going <laughs> to if I teach something different from your experience, you're going to feel like I am removing from you this thing that is so close to you because you have gone through existentially something so perfectly described here by Paul. And as we get closer to verse 14 and following, you're going to say, yeah, but, 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 but I know what this is like. And this is, this is your, this is your battle. This is what you've been through. I'm practicing what I would, I'm not practicing what I would like to do. I want to please God, but I'm not doing it. I'm doing the very thing I hate. I look at this battle and I I think I brought this up before, but I've, I've worked with so many guys in pornography. This, this comes straight to mind as I think about that, but this could be any. It could be uh, struggled not to drink too much alcohol. It could be uh, losing patience with your kids. Could be speaking disrespectfully to your husband, whatever. I don't want to do that. I hate the fact that I did that, but I find myself doing it. The very thing I do not want to do, yelling at my kids, throwing a fit, getting upset, whatever, I do. I agree with the law, confessing that it's good. And what some people do with this is they either reduce the law to the Ten Commandments, if you're in the Reformed camp, or in other camps tend to say this must be the law of Christ, as though Paul has shifted gears somewhere along here. I'm just going to tell you, there is no way exegetically to take this law a different way than Paul has been speaking thus far. It just doesn't work. All of the indicators in the section would indicate the law here means the same thing that he meant by it earlier. This is the law of Moses. But I'm gonna hold off on that. I just <laughs> I just wanna put that out there. But we we tend to think, oh, I, I agree the law is good. I, I wanna please God, but I'm doing the thing I don't wanna do. So no longer is it me, but it's sin that dwells in me. I know that nothing good dwells in, me in that that is in my flesh, so I still have this fleshly body. But the willing is present, but the doing of the good is not. And here's where our theology trumps exegesis. Here's where what we have been taught overrules what the text actually says. Some of you have been taught this doctrine of total depravity. And you've been taught that it is impossible for an unregenerate person to have any good thoughts whatsoever that the unregenerate person does not want to please God in any way, in any sense. They are spiritually dead and they have no desires whatsoever to ever serve God. That's what you've been taught. And then you come to a passage like this and it says, the willing is present within me. The willing to obey the law is there, but I can't do it. And so your theology says, this has to be a believer because he wants to do good. Going on, the good I want, same thing. This has to be a believer because he says the good I want to do. But I practice the very evil thing I do not want. But if I'm the one doing the thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin who dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. And again, your theology screams at you, this cannot be an unbeliever because an unbeliever doesn't joyfully concur with the law. I taught this with all the passion I could muster that way. I walked through and said, here's theologically what we know. Man is depraved. Man is unregenerate. He has lost every inclination of his heart, his only evil continually, Genesis 6. Therefore, this man in this text has to be a believer. And then it resonates so well with our experience because I'm guessing every one of us can go back, at least at some point in your Christian life, and say, Yeah. I did some things I really hated and I had this battle raging within me. And Paul just seems like he's explaining it so well. This has to be a believer. Because I think I was a believer when I was going through that. Paul's describing it, that has to be the case. I'm going to try with everything I can muster to show you that is not what Paul's doing here. The language just won't allow it. Here I have to ask you the question Are you a better theologian than God? We must not allow the writings of men to overrule what the scripture is teaching. I've warned you. I've warned you in many of these lessons. Systematic theology, where we put together our doctrines and we, we, we build them up and we commit ourselves to these doctrines. When we then bring those doctrinal categories and conclusions to a text and we find a text that seems to push back on those doctrines. We need to be humble enough to say, "Wait a minute! What what am I not understanding? I may not be understanding the text, or it may be that these conclusions that I'm willing to die on these hills, I'm willing to die on. Maybe maybe they're not quite right in every way." I was very humbled. So uh, I was uh, I was preaching or I was teaching through this back in ninety nine. 2000, and I walked through Romans 14, uh, Romans 7 here, verses 14 and following, and I made the switch to now this is Paul describing himself as a believer, and I had all the conviction I could muster, and I had all the rationale because I was reading all these theolo- theology books and commentaries, and they were giving me all the responses to the questions that come from the other side, and it was later on, the more I uh, learned Greek, now I studied Greek in seminary, but... You know, when you graduate seminary, you think you know everything about Greek, but you realize now, later, like, no, I didn't know. Um, but I kept at it. I kept translating, kept translating, kept translating. And at some point, I came to translate chapters six and seven from the Greek into English. And the one thing, and any of you who've ever studied a different language, you know this. One thing it does is when you translate, it forces you to really look at what is there right because you you have this foreign language and and you're now having to take every word and say what part of speech is this if it's a verb you know what tense is it what mood is it all those kind of things and w- we are forced to stick to the language as we translate so as i walked through this in the greek and along the same time i was also wrestling with what does the law, what role does the law play in the scripture? It hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I will never forget the exact experience of coming to grips with what Paul was saying here. And I had to go to my senior pastor, the senior pastor at the time. He had what I would now say is the correct view of Romans 7. And he allowed me to teach differently. But you know, we debated back and forth. And I probably in my pride, I think it's true in my pride, I didn't give him a fair hearing uh, because I was so convinced. And I had all these books that told me another way. And I remember having to walk into his office, head low, slumping, (laughs) saying, Dwight, you were right about Romans 7. I was wrong. We are not very good at reading the Bible. So let me me kind of prep for where we're going the next few days. When we get to verse seven, which is where we're gonna pick up today, but I wanted to kind of give this as an overview. When we get to verse seven, he starts using the first person, I. I. And we want to interpret that as autobiographical, right? I would not have come to know sin. I would not have known sin. I was once alive apart from the law. Sin taken an opportunity. It killed me. And we read all this and we think Paul's clearly giving his personal, autobiographical experience. And so we get down to verses 14 and following. He says, I am a flesh. What I am doing, I do not understand. And we think Paul has to be describing his experience. And then he switches to the present tense. Someone raised this question yesterday. Uh, Paul is using present tense. And so I am now doing this. We interpret that as though he must be talking about his present day experience. So here we have the Apostle Paul Writing to the Roman church, this apostle who's going out and preaching and teaching and and calling people to faith and instructing them, we have that apostle, present day for him, saying, I am of flesh. I am doing these things that I don't want to do. I am constantly sinning. I'm practicing, this is in the present tense here, that means ongoing. I am ongoingly practicing the very evil that I want. Paul is describing himself here as, frankly, a slave to sin. So if the common view is correct here, we have Paul, as he's writing this letter to a church in Rome, saying he is currently enslaved to sin. He's in bondage to it. He's got this battle raging that he just doesn't win. That's not what he's doing. I really don't think that's what he's doing. Paul frequently shifts into first person when he is arguing for a, a position. It's a, it's a rhetorical device. I do it all the time. You probably do it too. You know, it's it's so much easier to describe, uh, to, to illustrate when you're teaching, to illustrate something in the first person, to, to help people kind of get into it and, and see what it is you're describing. And then it also avoids getting all the pronouns. So let me give you another example. So this section that we looked at yesterday, uh, up here where he says, the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he dies is living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law, all this. I've taught this, you know, I've taught Romans, I don't know how many times. And I've, I've done this with this section. Just because we get kind of lost and, and caught up in the in the illustration at times. So I've, I've used first person with me and my wife. And I've said something like this. So here's what Paul's getting at. If, you know, so I'm married to my wife. Have been for many years. If my wife goes and uh, sleeps with another man while I'm alive, she's called an adulteress. Rightly so. She's committing adultery. But if I die then she is free to go marry someone else. And when she sleeps with her new husband, she's not an adulteress. So I've used that kind of illustration you know, hundreds of times in my ministry. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people come up to me after the class or after the sermon and say, you shouldn't talk about your wife that way. And I'm like, what way? I shouldn't talk about her what way? Well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't put her in the story like she's committing adultery. And I say, well, I, I, she's not, she's never committed adultery. I'm not, <laughs> I don't think that's true. I, I'm just trying to illustrate my point. And it's easier with the pronouns if I set myself up as one character and someone else as the other character, because otherwise I have to keep saying, like Paul does here, the man, the woman, he, she, they, and we get kind of lost in all that. But I've done that over and over again. I'll say, you know, suppose that I, I see an attractive woman and I'm just lusting after her with all my heart and I can't stop thinking about her body. And I've had people come up to me after that kind of thing and say, you know, that kind of causes me to stumble and it, it hurts my heart. It, it makes me wonder to think my, my pastor has those kind of thoughts about somebody. And I say, oh, I wasn't describing an actual experience for me. I'm trying to help you understand the point. We're just, we we, we sometimes just get so simplistic in our thinking that we're not good at categorizing these things. Let me show you how Paul does this even earlier in Romans, okay? In chapter three, now this gets kind of thick, so I'm not going to take the time today to walk through the points he's making, at least not in depth, but I want you to see what he's doing with his pronouns to uh, make his point. So at the beginning of chapter three, verse one, He asked this question that somebody else might ask in light of what he just said. He said, you know, the person who's a Jew outwardly is not the true Jew and all that. So he asked the question, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Well, his response is, it's great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now catch this. Who's he talking about here? He uses the third person plural, they. What advantage has the Jew? It's a great advantage. They, do you see how he's distancing himself from the Jew here? They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Then he asks another rhetorical question. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? What he's saying there is, some of those Jews in the past didn't believe God and therefore didn't obey him, does that mean God will be unfaithful? No, God will be faithful. And what he'll be faithful to is to bring the curses of the covenant. That's what he's getting at. May it never be. Of course, God will be faithful. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be a liar. And he quotes here uh, from the Old Testament. But if our unrighteousness. Now he's bringing it, now he's using we. So he went from they to we. If our unrighteousness, we Jews, he's, he's including himself with the Jews now. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Of course not. He says, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm using a human analogy. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to communicate with you in, in things that you can understand here humanly may it never be for otherwise how will god judge the world. Now you you may be getting lost in all the weeds here and that's okay. I'm, again, I'm not really trying to unpack this section. I'm trying to help you see his rhetorical device. Now he says, "But if through my lie the truth of god abounded to his glory, why am i also still being judged as a sinner?" Paul is not actually talking about himself. He's taking on the questioner role. He's putting himself in the first person of someone who might be asking this question. And he's saying, in light of what I just said, so if my lie causes God's glory to abound, why am I still judged as a sinner? This is kind of like what he does in chapter 6, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? My lie, I tell a lie, and God's glory abounds through my lie then God shouldn't call me a sinner because my sin is allowing God to manifest his glory. Now, Paul's not actually saying he is doing this, that he's a liar. But he's taking on the first person to help you get into the skin of someone who might ask this question. Verse 8, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, you see, he's saying, I'm not saying this. He wants to make make it clear he's not saying. In fact, it's slander if someone charges him with saying this. But he's still using the first person to illustrate his point. Why not say, let us do evil that good may come? And then he just gives a very terse response. Their condemnation is just. Are you are, are you following me? I hope you're seeing. Paul here is not claiming to be this sinner but he's adopting the language as though he is the sinner to help make the point. He does a similar thing in reverse in 2 Corinthians. There he switches to sort of an abstract third person. Check this out. 2 Corinthians 12. Boasting is necessary, he says, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, he says. Now what we're going to find out is Paul is here talking about himself. But because he doesn't want to boast in himself, he switches to the third person. I know a man. I know a guy, he says. In Christ, who 14 years ago, whether in body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Okay, so in Jewish categories, that is the place where God himself dwells. And I know how such a man, whether in body or apart from body, I do not know, God knows. I know how such a man was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Hold on, I'm having a slight technical glitch here on my end. Let me finish that, okay, thank you. He was caught into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of sp- such a man, I will not boast. I'm not gonna boast on that man. I'm sorry, I got that backwards. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. That man who was taken to the third heaven, I will boast into him. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. For I will be speaking the truth. For I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears in me. Now he's saying, look, this really is me. I'm talking about that man, but I don't wanna be guilty of boasting. Now he brings it back home to himself because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now we can talk about sometime what that thorn in the flesh is. Or you, um, anyway, the point is Paul here as a rhetorical device as a as a way to illustrate his point and separate from the boasting because he he says it's a fool. I don't want to be boasting; it's foolish. I know a guy. But he's really talking about himself so the point is when we get into romans 7 starting in verse 7 and he goes through all this i language i would not have come to know sin except through the law sin taking opportunity uh, produced coveting in me i was once alive apart from the law and so on down to verse uh, 14 i am a flesh what i am doing i do not understand That is not to be taken autobiographically present day for Paul. It's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he is driving home the point of what it was like for a Jew under the law who tried to keep the law and he was a slave to sin. All the way through the rest of chapter 7 even verse 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. That is Paul, the Jew, proving the point, explaining existentially what it was like to be under the law. Remember, Paul has said, the law came in to increase sin. How did it do that? That's verses seven through 12. Paul said, the Jew, in verse six, chapter six, verse 14, the Jew under the law was a slave to sin. What did that look like? What was it? What was the experience of a Jew as a slave to sin? That's chapter 7, verses 14 through 19, maybe 20. That's how you need to read seven. So, in preparation for tomorrow, I want to encourage you, read seven seven through the end of the chapter and set aside your theological. Presuppositions about total depravity and all that, and read it as a Jew enslaved to the sin. I mean, enslaved to the law. No, sorry, enslaved to sin under the law, where the law increases your sin and the law makes you a slave to sin, and it will make perfect sense. All right, I see a few uh, comments here, so let me uh, back up and see what you had to say. JH says, uh, ESV says, I'm looking at a header in verse seven. There are no other breaks. Excellent. That's good on the ESV because there's no break in the argument uh, in verse 14. So I'm glad to glad to see that. Patty says, "For we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The strife of the two natures." Yeah. If you've been with me so far, you're uh, that I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't believe we have two natures. Um, if you weren't with me in the earlier lessons, uh, I encourage you to go back and watch them. Uh, there's no two natures. Um, Chapter six and in chapter seven, uh, the old man is dead. That's not describing two natures, uh, I don't believe. Paul says, and there are other places in scripture that states someone wants to obey but cannot. We'll look at that in due course. We'll look at that as we, uh, as we get into the uh, text. Yes, uh, I believe there are. Uh, James says, 714, we know the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh soldier in sin. Yeah, again, he's describing a slave to sin. Which, if you've been with us so far, Paul says that those who are in Christ are not enslaved to sin. They're not. So, Paul can't be talking about a Christian in verse 14. It can't be if you read verse 16, I mean, chapter 6. Sorry, getting ahead of myself. Patty says, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not. Yep, stay with me. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. James says, of the flesh equals of the Jews. Yes, the Jews under the law enslaved to sin. Exactly, uh, Patty says that's a KJV. Peter says, how do they know the law was spiritual? Well, the first question is, what does Paul mean by that, right? And that's a good question. And unfortunately, Paul doesn't explain thoroughly what that means. So we gotta we gotta sort through that. Um, that part is uh, I just say on the front, and that part is is a little bit unclear. The rest of it is is pretty clear to me. All right, so here's here's my homework assignment for you. I know you've got more questions and we'll engage with them as they go, but do me this favor. Do what I asked you a moment ago. Read verses seven through the end of the chapter and try to set aside everything else you you think and read it as a Jew enslaved to sin, trying to keep the law but can't, and the sin causes you i mean the law causes you to sin more i think you will open up something that you've never seen before and you realize yep this is exactly what paul is saying all right with that i'm going to call it a day have a great one thanks guys for being with me thanks for your patience and uh, keep learning we'll keep learning together till tomorrow god bless